Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. For at least 50 years, it's been realized that uprightness or bipedality is really of all the characteristics that define humans and our immediate ancestors or hominins. Bipedality is really probably the most distinctive. It is from the beginning uh, and continuing into the present day, it's standing and walking, moving, locomoting on two lower limbs, which really sets us apart more than anything else, really, from the beginning, from our closest relatives. Now, of course, the human family tree has expanded a lot in the last 50 years. This is actually taken from a uh, figure from Wood and uh, Richmond. Brian Richmond is one of our speakers today from about 11 years ago, and I had to add a few more tracks to it. For today, uh, so new uh, taxes are being added all the time, and are, are thinking about these taxes changing all the time with the discovery of new material. Now, I think most people would agree that most people in the field would agree that bipedalism was a part of the normal locomotor repertoire from the beginning. In fact, by definition, that almost has to be the case. If you're a hominin, bipedalism must be at least part of your locomotor uh, repertoire, and we can call this facultative. Uh, which just means that you could do it. Somewhere, even down here, there's evidence that uh, some bipedality was practiced. And I think we would also, people in the field would agree, and everybody else, that by later Homo erectus and certainly Homo sapiens, that we had exclusively bipedal behavior, or committed or obligatory. So those things are not really in question. What is in question is what happened in between the two. That is... Do we have a progression, even progression, through the years of uh, gradually increasing sophistication of bipedal gait, gradual perfection of bipedal gait? What kinds of variations in bipedal gait might we have? Were there possible regressions to a less bipedal locomotor repertoire? Do different parts of the body evolve at the same rate if you're becoming better at bipedality? There's still lots of questions here that are up in the air. And it partly depends on what skeletal features you look at. So even within this one fairly circumscribed group, the Hadar hominids, the skeletons have been interpreted in very different ways in the past, depending on which features you concentrate on. Certain features indicate an arboreal locomotor repertoire, at least in part. Others have been interpreted as indicating committed and exclusive bipedality. So really, which traits you use and what the constraints on those traits are and how they reflect what an animal was capable of doing and what it actually did do are all very important questions for interpreting the skeletal record. Um, And we're going to be talking about lots of parts of that skeletal record today. Um, beginning with a talk on the pelvis, which is the next talk. Obviously, pelvis, a very critical part of the skeleton for uh, bipedal locomotion. Lots of changes have taken place in the pelvis. As you can see, just from a quick comparison of a human and a gorilla pelvis. So I hope you uh, enjoy the talks. Uh, I think there's really quite a variety here represented in terms of topics and in terms of approaches. Hopefully, by the end of it, We'll have, if not a clearer view of how bipedality evolved, at least a more complete or complex view.
Our next talk is by Brian Richmond from George Washington University, entitled Pleistocene Footprints and the Evolution of Human Bipedalism. Okay, well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'd like to thank the members of CARTA, um, the organizers, and Steve Churchill and Chris Ruff, and for all of you for coming today. Um, um, I'm following up on uh, a number of good talks. It's hard to follow an act like that. But I wanted to, to echo their uh, sentiments that, that uh, the evolution of human gait has long been central to our understanding of, of human origins. And it's led to iconic images that are um, in, the, in the public today, and even led to public commentary about where we are today or where we're headed. Um, I won't, uh, won't go into that today. That's, that's above my pay grade. Um, so, uh, but many of those reconstructions were um, initially based on uh, at a time um, when we didn't have a very complete fossil record. Um, and as uh, uh, several uh, speakers have noted, that fossil record is growing, and it's growing at an increasing pace, which is really exciting for us. And so at this point in time, uh, we have upwards of 20 or more species in the human fossil record that represent our ancestors and relatives, um, and they're bound to be more, especially down in this area. Um, so it's a very rich fossil record. I'm obviously not going to talk about all of that today, um, but I'm going to point out that in addition to fairly maybe subtle variation among species, we have at least several major transitions from, um, well, the jury is still out on what Artipithecus is what the morphology means, um, uh, but certainly we have an increasing understanding of, of the anatomy of Australopithecus afarensis and now Sediba as well, that represents really interesting wrinkles in the evolution of anatomy, um, and there's a, a, at, least, at least one major transition people can agree on between um, uh, Australopithecines such as Australopithecus afarensis and africanus, and what we see in early Homo erectus. And that occurs at a time, indicated in orange, uh, when there were dramatic changes in the, in the environment, where East Africa saw just a wholesale change towards much drier conditions and the, first ex the expansion of the first really true um, uh, savanna grasslands the way we see today. And it probably had something to do with that transition. But uh, now the anatomy, though, has led to an, an immense amount of debate about what exactly was the, the gate like of early hominins, and I think now the question has changed to what were early hominin gates like, that there, there are bound to be these subtle variations as well. But I would argue, too, that to really test these hypotheses that, ge that are generated from the anatomy, so we need some kind of evidence of past behavior. One way we can look at that is look at the way bones respond to changes in exercise, and that can give us uh, um, some direct evidence of how individuals acted during their lifetime. And we also have a few cases like, like this where we have footprints in the ground, and those represent fossilized behavior. Um, you know, that was something that, was, uh, that records an event of the behavior of some individuals walking across that landscape. And it tells us about gait. It's also led to some very creative and popular um, notions about what the, what the social behavior might have been like of these early hominins. So you'll note that here are three different reconstructions of this fossil trail. And here, the female's walking in front. The male's, I don't know if he's following or stalking her. I'm not sure. Um, here we have uh, uh, the, the male taking the lead to his pregnant partner. And here they're walking arm in arm, which is very cute. What's, what's interesting, though, is these are all just, I, I can't believe how fundamentally wrong they are because they are because if you look at the trails, 
the one on the left represents one individual. If this was another individual, it would be twice as big. And if, if you look closely, there are actually three different individuals making tr tracks in that trackway. So there are three of them walking behind each other and one walking to the side. So none of these really have it quite right. But certainly, uh, this, is, this was and still is a very exciting discovery that's, that's still debated today. But uh, until recently, we haven't had really anything to compare it to. This, this was a singular discovery, and there, wasn't, uh, there, were, there were not um, footprints from other species and other times to be able to compare to look at the evolution of, of, um, of these kinds of fossilized behavior. So what I'm going to briefly mention today is, is our discovery of, of a, a new collection of footprints and um, what that is starting to tell us about the, the evolution of human gait. So that takes us here to Eastern Africa, to Kenya, um, up here to Lake Turkana. If we blow up this picture of Lake Turkana, we're working right up here near the Ethiopian border, near a town called Ilaret, which is right there. And now the site looks something like this. And we, have, um, we were uh, digging at the site um, because we'd been finding some fossil hominin um, um, uh, arm bones and hand bones that would be for another talk. Um, but as we were digging here, um, we ended up discovering um, something we, we didn't expect. First, let me point out that we're fortunate here in this part of, part of East Africa to have a rich um, uh, fossil deposit that's full of volcanic ashes. So here's the volcanic ash, volcanic ash here in white. There's another one here in gray. You can just see outcropping. And there's another um, lighter one right up here. So there's three volcanic ashes interbedded in this one hillside. And we know from a lot of geological work that's been done in the area um, that those three represent the northern Illaret, Illaret, and lower Illaret tuff that have been dated to within about 10 to 15,000 years uh, of each other. So it's remarkable that this whole hillside represents um, somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 15,000 years of time, one and a half million years ago. So, but this also complicates things. Having such a rich fossil record um, also uh, uh, means that at any one time, there's more than one species living at that time. And we know that at one and a half million years ago, at least four species were present in Africa. And three of these species, this Pranthropus boisei, Homo habilis, and Homo erectus, um, or early African Homo erectus, they were all present. In fact, they're all, all three of those are known within a mile of the site. Um, so, uh, so we don't know which species are represented at the site yet. Now, what I'd like to draw your attention to is that we were, um, we were down here excavating for fragments of a, a, a partial skeleton um, when some geologists were studying the hillside. And I'm going to zoom in right here on this backpack. And this picture here, you see the backpack. Um, and you can see in cross-section this nice, um, we see this nice uh, sedimentary layer here. And there's some sand with a little bit of cross-bedding here. There's another um, sort of muddy, silty package and more sand. Um, and, and I'm not a geologist, so I thought, well, that's really neat. You know, but my geologist uh, colleagues who are studying this, and a couple of them pointed out and said, you know, this is really unusual to have this really irregular surface. You know, we don't know of any uh, physical processes that would give you that, those could be footprints. We're like, huh? So what we did is we excavated laterally to the side, and in this picture, you can see this is where we were standing before, and look, this whole layer is just full of footprints, which we wouldn't have discovered otherwise. And here's why. When fossils, which are basically bones that have turned into rocks, when they finally emerge on the surface and weather out on the surface, 
they're there to be found. So when you walk along looking for fossils, you're looking for the things that have eroded out to the surface. When a footprint erodes onto the surface, it's just dirt. So people don't go prospecting for footprints. You don't find them that way. Um, so once, once we were clued in to what were the kinds of interfaces of uh, a, a basically a fine-packed silt mud buried in sand, if, if we knew we could find those combinations, then there was a good chance that, that the sand had buried some kind of surface at that time. So we started looking for that. And in this one hillside, we've now fa- found upwards of 12 land surfaces with prints in them just in, in nine meters within that uh, 10, 10 15,000 years. And some of them have really exquisite preservation. And we were fortunate enough, I also thought when we found this, I was like, well, hominin fossils represent somewhere in the vicinity of 1% of the, of the macrofauna uh, macro and the fossil record. So I was trying to imagine how much of the hill you'd have to dig until you find one per- the 1% that represents hominins. Fortunately, they happen to like this environment so um, we have lots of uh, uh, footprints of uh, large birds, like this thing that was probably a, a fossil stork. Um, we have fossil bovids, lots of them, fossil hippos. But we also found some fossil hominin prints. And here, some of them with, with really exquisite anatomical detail. Like here you can see the big toe, the second, third, fourth, fifth toes as the foot sunk into the mud. And uh, here's another one where you can really see all the toes nicely lined up. And here's a nice little footprint. So this is really exciting because it, it gives us a whole new um, uh, a time period, new line of inquiry to ask questions about in the fossil record. So this is actually from a couple of years ago, but we've done more since then, is um, we found at least two different layers in that one hill hominin footprints. In fact, last summer we continued this trail on some more, and um, uh, we also continued this trail on some more. This upper surface had a lot of hominin um, uh, footprints in it, Again, these represent, these represent two different surfaces separated by f- uh, five to 10,000 years in this particular instance. So they're, they're not the same individuals in the same instance. Um, so what we did to record and analyze those um, is use a method called photogrammetry, um, which it's nice and easy. All you need is a camera, although you, you also need shade, which is not easy when you're um, near the equator in the desert in Africa. So I had a team that, that created shade for us for these pictures. And what we do is take a whole repeated series of photos that overlap. And just like your eye sees two images and interpolates that into three dimensions, um, we did that with the photographs. And so each purple um, box represents where the camera was when we took a picture. And we get an entire land surface in two dimensions, and we can even get it in three dimensions as well. So, and then we can do something like this, where we have um, a hominin print. Here's a modern foot for scale. Uh, here, then you get you get a nice three-dimensional um, uh, capture of that of that topography. Now, what's exciting about that is that it not only gives us a, a nice color picture, but it, it it actually it gives us contours where we can look at not just the shape of the outer outer contour of the print, but we can look at the, the depths within a print. And we, we suspect that the depths in a print are related to how you're mechanically using your foot on the substrate. So um, here uh, on this upper surface, it's, it's, there's a, there are a lot of prints in here. But here, for example, is a right footprint, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. Um, and you can see here's the, the, the 3D capture of, of that trail. Um, and we've done some things like look at some stride lengths and step lengths. Um, once we found these footprints, 
We were also struck by how little data there were out there on how to interpret footprints. There hasn't been a lot of need to do that, I think. So we've, we set up a whole experiment out in the field with um, local people who, who thankfully grew up without wearing shoes, so we had some habitually unshod folks. And we had them um, walk, jog, and run through a um, mud pallet and also on a, pre- a pressure pad, which measures your foot function as you land, uh, to try to look at things like speed and stature and foot length and so forth. So with those modern footprints and with the fossil footprints, we set about to measure anatomical landmarks. Now, this is not the the same thing as the foot itself because the same foot making a series of footprints will make slightly different footprints every time. So one foot that doesn't change its shape much um, can still make different kinds of footprints. And that's what we're trying to do. We think the, the slop, if you will, the variation in different footprints during gait that's a lot of the source of interesting information. It's not, it's not noise, it's the signal. So what we're trying to do is figure out what that signal is and how it varies with speed and how muddy it is and, um, uh, and also your gait, how, whether you walk with extended limbs or flexed limbs and so forth. So we set about um, digitize some of the, these landmarks and I'm just going to point out a few things that we found so far. The first thing is these fossil footprints are big. Um, they are as big as um, uh, most modern footprints. And that's, that's not quite what we expected. Based on, based on fossils, the best body size estimates of early Homo erectus or Pranthus boisei or Homo habilis tend to be on the smaller side. Um, uh, so these are really large prints. And you can compare them to the typical Lyotoli print. Um, so these are much larger individuals than what you see in, in, in afarensis. We also looked at something that's of, of interest, which is how, how divergent is that big toe? It's going to be a little bit different. Looking at bones, um, you can look at how, how they might articulate, but here's how they're actually functioning on a substrate. And what we did is we simply measured that big toe and um, uh, extrapolated it back to where it intersected with the axis of the foot. And we have two different modern groups. One was the sample I showed you of those local Dashnich folks in Kenya. Another one was a set of Holocene modern human prints. Uh, Now, what we see is that the Lyotoli prints have a much more divergent toe. Now, this is not as divergent as what you saw in some previous slides with chimpanzees or gorillas. They would be out here. So uh, uh, we don't think that the the makers of the Lyotoli prints had a grasping toe, but there is evidence that there's more... There's just still more of a gap between the big toe and other toes. Interestingly, in three different surfaces, um, uh, we're seeing sort of an intermediate. We're seeing a more, uh, we're seeing a toe more in line with the other toes, but not completely. Um, we still don't know whether some of this might be due to variation in the mud type or something like that. But it is it is interesting that maybe even hominins at one and a half million years ago didn't have a big toe that was quite as fully adducted or brought in line as, as ours. Another measure of great interest is whether these hominins had a really well-developed longitudinal arch. Um, so what we did to try to measure that is, is measure the, the broadest point on the ball of the foot, which we uh, uh, show here, and the narrowest point in the instep. Um, th- those with high arches tend to have a very narrow strip here. A flat foot, you'd see a lot of um, you'd see a lot of depression down here. And what we found basically is in blue, the Lyotoli prints for a given width of the ball of the foot, they had a much broader instep, meaning that there wasn't much of a uh, of a at least a tissue arch there. Um, and the green and gray represent our modern sample, and the red represent one of the fossil samples. Interestingly. 
one of the other layers, we have a couple of individuals um, that have what look like a much more primitive kind of art shape. It's possible we have two different species represented here. Again, we can't tell which species the, the printmakers are yet, but we're ideally we're going to find three different foot shapes. That would be ideal. I don't know if I can put that order into the paleoanthropology guides or not. Um, uh, actually, my, what I really want, if I get to put one order in, I really want one to walk along and then trip and do a whole body plant. You get a whole, you know, that's what, I, I will be a true believer. But um, that's what I tell everyone. Like, please, that's what I want. Um, but facial expression would be great. Um, but uh, <laughs> we'll keep looking. So um, fi- finally, one last thing we did too was that we wanted to see if the deepest point under the, underneath, the, uh, the, the, underneath the footprint, uh, where that was, and especially where that was under the ball of the foot. So if we take a Lyotoli footprint and we warp it into one of these one and a half million year old prints, one of the things we see is that um, this medial part of the foot moves over, which reflecting that arch measurement, and then the deepest point of the ball of the foot moves towards the big toe. That's interesting because that's one of the hallmarks of the way we walk. However, as a caveat, um, if we warp one of these one and a half million year old prints into a modern human print, it moves over even further and the arch moves over even further. So we don't know whether this represents just different foot morphologies at this point or possibly uh, differences in gait or substrate or what. But what it does suggest, the fact that this deepest point in the footprint, that's something that, that is typical of, of a human way of walking. When we land on our heel like this, the path of pressure goes along the outside of our foot and right near the end of our stance phase, the end of our, of our support, we shift all that weight over to the big toe or towards the big toe and we push off and we propel ourselves. And that's part of our efficient way of walking that makes our walking more efficient than that of, of other mammals. Apes tend to land on their heel the path of pressure goes along the outside of the foot, but then they just lift their foot up. They don't push in with, uh, with their, the strongest toe, their big toe. So the fact that this, this, the deepest point is farther over towards the midline, towards the medial side, that suggests to us that we're seeing this more modern type uh, way of walking at one and a half million years ago. So here we are, we, we don't know yet whether that represents Homo erectus, Homo habilis, or Boisei. Based just on the sheer size of the prints, we, don't, we have no Homo habilis that are big enough to be good candidates. Uh, right now it would either be male Pranthropus Boisei or Homo erectus, um, or both. If, if, if the footprints are indistinguishable, it would suggest that the common ancestor of those had a foot morphology kind of like this. So it's still early days because we, uh, we have a limited sample so far, but I would say that the Kubi-4 formation is an enormous place full of exposures, and we've already identified a half a dozen other sites um, kilometers away from our site where we have some kind of footprints of bobbins or something else. So I think this is opening up. It's really exciting. It's opening up a whole new line of inquiry about looking at variation across landscapes and over time um, that can help answer some of these questions and test some of these models about how our early ancestors walked long ago. So thank you very much, and I'd like to thank you all for coming. Our next speaker is Dr. Carol Ward from the University of Missouri, talking about early hominid body form. Hello, I'd like to thank also um, Chris and Steve and Carta and the organizers for inviting us all here. And um, enough of the feet already, they're interesting, but we're going to move things back north for a little while. 
I'm going to talk about body form, specifically the torso, because that actually has quite a bit to say about how our ancestors may have moved and walked. What I'm going to give you today is sort of the simplified view, because I only have a little bit of time. But I hope it gives you a sense that when we look at not just the limbs and the lower limbs and the feet that we tend to focus on, there's really quite a bit more information we can put to the question about how our ancestors moved around. Now, why do we really care, actually, how someone like Lucy here, the poster child for human and evolution moved around, well, this not only tells us about the origins of bipedality and the origins of hominins and the early evolution of hominins, but also we have to remember that natural selection can only act on last year's model, on the variation that's present. So the more that we know about early hominins and their body form and their locomotion, the more we understand about the kind of natural selection or the kind of material selection had to work on to produce our genus Homo. So it's a really important question. And aren't you tired of seeing this diagram today? Um, we've been seeing this diagram since about 1973 when this article was published in Time Life. And even though we put it up here, we talk about it, this is an iconic image. And thank you very much, Dr. Richmond, for stealing my joke. We all have T-shirts, things on the walls of our cubicles that parody this picture. It's funny. It's everywhere. Everyone, I think, in the country has seen this image or used it. But it also plays into, I think, our perceptions and our ideals of actually how human evolution evolved. You have these knuckle-walking creatures that slowly start standing up in a shuffling way, and they move around, and they finally get better and better and at it until they're us today. I think this colors a lot of the public perceptions of human evolution, and I think it's in the back of our minds even as scientists as we're looking at the fossil record because we have a feeling of this is kind of how it happened. And I think there's time with the growing fossil record. I I think you've all seen here today, we're getting a much better appreciation of variation, a much more complete picture of the anatomy of all these different species of hominins that are lived, that maybe this picture, although it makes a wickedly funny t-shirt, is maybe something that we should stop paying so much attention to you. So what I hope to talk about today is some of the evidence that's come to light in the last, oh, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years that really should make us question perhaps whether or not the earliest part of our lineage, these Australopithecines, were in fact shuffling around like they, are, they have been since 1973 in this time-life diagram. And you wouldn't think that we'd have a whole lot to say about the torso and the body form of these creatures because vertebrae and ribs and things are fragmentary. They don't preserve very well. But in fact, paleontologists have been dutifully out there in um, East Africa and South Africa finding fossils. And we actually, as you've seen today, have quite a number of skeletons which we can put to bear on the question of what these animals look like. I'm going to talk to you today about really just the vertebral column, pelvis, and the torso here um, of most of these, of Australopithecus afarensis and Africanus and even Homo erectus. These fellows are too new and I haven't put them in my analysis, but they're going to have a lot to say as well. So we actually have some material to work with. Now, when an animal stands upright, like a human, for example, we have a particularly unique, not just lower limb, but bipedalities manifest throughout our skeletons, particularly in our vertebral column. And if you look at the side view of a human and a chimpanzee, you see some notable differences in the spine. Chimpanzees are like your pick your favorite quadruped here. The spine has evolved to be sort of a uniform arch structure with a series of vertebral bodies, and they have a fairly even concave, um, forwardly concave curvature to them. When humans stand upright, and this develops throughout our ontogeny from the beginning, we've been to hold our head upright, the beginning to sit upright and stand, we have a series of sinusoidal curvatures in our spine. 
that allows us to get our center of gravity up over our supporting limbs. We don't walk around like this poor chimpanzee is here. I was challenged my students to say, if you don't, you don't like the spinal curvature, try walking around for a couple of days like this. Come back on Monday and tell me how your back feels. It doesn't work very well. This is a very mechanically efficient way to balance our weight right over our supporting lower limbs and is distinctive of humans. We do not see these curvatures in other animals, even trained monkeys that walk upright on two feet in the circuses and zoos and so forth. So this is a distinguishing human feature. So we might ask when we look back at those early Australopithecus skeletons, did they have curvatures like this? Because that might tell us if they're standing upright or if they're shuffling in a bent over posture. So the vertebral column actually here is a series of wedge-shaped blocks. And a lot of the curvatures come from stacking up a series of wedge-shaped blocks. And there's other things involved, too. Um, But in the thoracic or the rib-bearing region, this is the front of this person in the back, the spine curves forward. And these are wedge-shaped blocks that are shorter in the front than in the back. In the lumbar or lower back region, as well as in the neck, the back of the vertebra is shorter than the front. So we can measure this wedge shape of individual bones and say something about the curvature of the whole column put together. So bear with me for a moment on this graph. We can number the vertebrae from the bottom up to the top, and we can measure this wedge shape. How short is this angle? So this, on this side, positive numbers would have shorter in the front, and on this side, you'd have shorter in the back. And you could put a chimpanzee on here, and they wiggle around a little bit, but all of their vertebrae are wedged forward because that spine is curved forward all the way through the column. You put a human on here, and you see actually two peaks. This is very distinctive of anterior wedging. And then, boom, in the lower back, this is where it hurts for those of you older people like myself. Um, The wedging is posterior, and that gives you that backward curvature that causes the problems. Now we can put some fossils on here. Here's our Homo erectus boy, and it's not quite as complete, but you can kind of imagine two peaks. But sure enough, in the lower lumbar region, he's wedged. We can put Lucy on here. She doesn't have very many vertebrae, but you sort of get a two peaks. We can put a Australopithecus africanus, the distinctive two peaks, and sure enough, negative down in the bottom. We can put another Australopithecus africanus, negative in the bottom. And if we slap them all on here at one time, you can see all of them have the hint at these two distinctive peaks, but notably they have this posterior wedging at the bottom. So we can see that the distinctive human spinal curvatures are with us even as early as Australopithecus afarensis. And based on these guys, we don't seem to see a heck of a lot of variation in this pattern of curvatures. So rather than thinking of these creatures as hunched over, we can go back to our diagram and maybe put a big X through this portion of it. They weren't probably hunched forward like this. And they're actually, when you walk with bent knees and bent hips, if you walk around like this, you will naturally lean forward and flatten out your curvatures when you're walking over bent knees and bent hips. We've done a little bit of kinematic data that aren't quite ready to publish or show you yet. But in fact, we think this suggests not only is your torso upright, but your lower limbs would have been pretty well extended too. So even in the beginning of our time-life diagrams, you've got a fairly upright posture to the spine. So that's something that we can learn about posture from the torso. But if you look, for example, at the gorilla and the human here, and you look at this region, you see that they're pretty different. And other speakers have alluded to this today. The humans have the short, distinctive pelvis. We have a fairly long lumbar spine and a waist and this sort of barrel-shaped rib cage. And there's a real difference here. So can we see anything about that when we look at these fossils? Um, This picture I took from Leslie Aiello's paper. It's a very nice diagram showing the chimp and the human. You see this cone-shaped rib cage here in the chimp and a barrel shape in a human. Now, 
the rib cage in the torso is made up of a whole lot of little bones put together. And it's very, you don't ever find them all laid there together in the fossil record. So you have to try to make inferences from bits and pieces of the whole. And this is hard to do. And again, as other speakers have mentioned, until recently we haven't had a lot of partial skeletons to work with. So in the early 80s, this was the reconstruction of Australopithecus that was made. And I'll show you how it was done. Uh, but you can see this rib shape here is very cone-shaped and very much like an ape and not particularly much like yours or mine. Here's another picture of that reconstruction of Lucy. This reconstruction was based on Lucy. And the brown parts here in this reconstruction are the parts that are fossils, and the white parts are the parts that are kind of made up. And you'll notice if you look at the rib cage, there's a heck of a lot of white parts. So when this reconstruction was made, there wasn't really a whole lot to go on. And it was really the best game in town, and it was going. But this cone-shaped rib cage has had actually quite a lot of influence on our biological interpretations of our ancestors for more even than just locomotion. If you imagine if you take your eye and you sort of connect the dots through here, what you get is sort of what would look like a really big belly, no waist kind of a shape, maybe more like our friend Am Bam the gorilla here that we've all seen on YouTube, and not particularly human-like. And from this, we have made inferences about the biology and locomotion of Australopithecus. For example, there's not a lot of a waist here. And a waist is something you use to rotate your pelvis and move your spine when you're walking an efficient bipedal gait. Without a waist, you've watched an ape walk, they're kind of the torso stiff and they move back and forth. It's not nearly as fluid and efficient as our gait. We can also imagine, if you dot the lines here, there's a huge area here for a gut. And apes have very large guts. We have smaller guts, and there seems to have been a change in human evolution. But a lot of our inference for what it would have been like in Australopithecus comes, in fact, from this reconstruction. Also, this is very narrow at the top, unlike ours, and that has also been linked perhaps to tree climbing or arboreality getting at the locomotor hypotheses for Australopithecus locomotion. And a lot of that is, in fact, based on this reconstruction, which I said was the best game in town going, but there are new fossils that have been found since the early um, the 80s and 90s when this was published. So, for example, I'll just whiz through some of the evidence here. And some of this is older, some of this is newer, but it's been accumulating over time. This is the lower part of the vertebral column of your neck. And in a human here, you can see where the rib attaches to the vertebra here. So your very first rib, this is a neck vertebra, this is a chest vertebra here. The rib attaches at the vertebral body and then again out here. In a human, the first rib attached was the first thoracic vertebra. And you can see the facet joints here where they articulate. And a chimpanzee, on the other hand, the rib actually sits higher. So the whole chest cavity sits a little bit higher up on the neck. And you can see on the head of the first rib of a chimp, two distinct articular facets, one for this vertebra, one for this one. Um, and Jim Oman in 1986 published these pictures of Lucy. And in fact, there's only one facet. If you look more closely at some of the Australopithecus fossils, there is only one facet here. So the rib is sitting not between these vertebrae, but down lower in a slightly more human-like position. If you take a bird's eye view of the rib cage, this is a thoracic vertebra. This is the spinous processes, those bumps that run up and down your back back here. Um, you can see the spinous process back here. So this is the back. The person's belly would be up in the ceiling. And in a human, the ribs arc from the vertebra back around up towards your chest. In a chimpanzee, the ribs kind of shoot straight out from the vertebral column. 
And this is, so the vertebral body is less pushed into the thoracic cavity. It's less invaginated. In a human, you have much greater invagination here. There's more leverage for the extensor muscles to hold up the spine, et cetera, et cetera. And that's rather different from a chimpanzee. Now, we don't have whole articulated rib cages in the fossil record, but you can see the transverse process here and where this rib would attach to the vertebra. In humans, it's swinging way back. In a chimpanzee, it's kind of sticking out to the side. And that's something we can measure because we have these vertebrae. This is a new one from the Hadar site. Um, and, and that's been found is found in the 90s, and this is Lucy, and we can actually measure the attachment of where this rib would attach and take a look at it. And if you do that for the middle thoracic vertebrae, these are separate vertebrae, we can measure this angle. In an ape, the angle is larger because the processes where the ribs attach are sticking out to the side all the way through. In a human, they tend to be lower. And in Australopithecus, both Afarensis and Africanus, they're really low, which shows that those transverse processes were very dorsally inclined. That vertebral column is quite invaginated. And that is associated, again, with that upright posture. So if we looked at Australopithecus, they would have looked much more human-like, thin chim like in that cross-sectional shape of that rib cage. So the ribs are a little bit lower, and they're more in the vertebral columns more invaginated on top of that more curved spine. Now, in 2010, a second Australopithecus afarensis skull was published. This is called um, Katanumu. It was from, published by Johannes Haile Selassie and its colleagues. It's bigger than Lucy. This is a nice big male. And wonderfully, it has some reasonably complete ribs, including this complete second rib. This is the first complete one we've had. Lucy's just got little bits and pieces, and they're not very easy to work with. So what Haile Selassie and the colleagues did is they measured the neck of the rib here is where it attaches to the spine. They took the neck here, and then they measured the distance, how far it flares out, and how far it curves around the front of the rib cage. And you can make a little ratio of these and tell how curved they are. Here's a picture of a human rib. So here's the neck, and here's this blue line sitting way back here as these ribs are curving around. The gorilla, not so much. This thing just heads right out here and shoop, right back up to the midline. So they published this graph. So here's humans and um, Katanumu's vertebrae down here. They're very curved. This ratio is very low, whereas a chimpanzee and a gorilla are not. And so they could say, aha, the upper part of the rib cage where the second rib is, is not ape-like. And this might have to do with either knuckle walking, because chimps and gorillas are knuckle walkers. Or I wondered if this had to do, in fact, with the shape of the rib cage when you put it together. So my undergraduate student, Sarah Bartlett, sat there and drew blue and red lines on pictures of ribs for about three weeks. And we were able to measure these not just in chimps and gorillas, but in other specimens. And here's what you see. Gibbons look like humans. And gibbons have a barrel-shaped rib cage on top. Orangutans look like chimpanzees and gorillas. They have a cone-shaped rib cage on top. And siamangs, interestingly, are somewhat in between. So what this seems to reflect is not necessarily arboreality, because gibbons are sure pretty good in the trees with their hand-over-hand brachiation, but in fact, perhaps rib cage shape, suggesting perhaps that at least this Australopithecus afarensis individual had a more dome-shaped rib cage up near the top than we had suspected previously. So not only does the top of the rib cage show a little bit less great ape-like um, cone shape than we thought, the bottom of the rib cage does it well. If you look again where these ribs attach to the vertebrae, 
They attach at the body, and they also attach on this transverse process. And if you look at the last three ribs of a human, you can see ribs 11 and 12 are floating ribs. These are the ones that people like Cher and Scarlett O'Hara get removed so they have nice small waists. Um, but this 10th rib has a big fat articulation for the transverse process. If you look at a chimpanzee, on the other hand, you see these big articulations all the way down. The lower ribs are big, and they're attached tightly to that rib cage. So they can't wiggle around in the soft tissue like our floating ribs can. When we look at Lucy, she doesn't have all of them, but we can see this is thought to be a 10th rib with a big articulation, and it has at least one rib here with no articulation at all. So there's at least one floating rib, so the bottom half of the rib cage wasn't attached maybe quite as tightly and immovably to the vertebral column in Lucy as it would be in a chimpanzee. So when we go back again to this reconstruction, I think that there is enough new fossil evidence that we can perhaps put an X through exactly this reconstruction as well. Now, if I were really artistic and clever, I would draw what I think Lucy looked like, but I'm not very good artistically. So um, I'm sorry to have done this to your diagram, Dan. This is a picture from Dan Lieberman's papers a few years ago, and it shows a chimp and a human and a Lucy skeleton using this reconstruction that was published at the time. And I'm afraid all I can do is use Photoshop pretty well, so I'm afraid I Photoshopped your, your Lucy here to give what I would consider a new and improved Lucy based on some of this new evidence. A number of changes include a rib cage that really is broader up at the top, than we had seen perhaps in the reconstructions beforehand. Um, and, you know, those still fairly wide at the bottom. These are wide bodied little individuals. But also, perhaps more of a waist than we might have suspected, given the fact that there are quite a number of lumbar vertebrae. I haven't showed you the evidence, but they have at least as many as us. And they would have been perhaps more mobile with more floating ribs here. So maybe they would have had more of a waist. Now, it may not be exactly like you and me. But it's also not exactly like a chimpanzee either. And I think we need to think of this evidence when we're thinking about the biology and the locomotion of these animals based on what we can see from bits and pieces of the rib cage. So we can go back to our early time life diagram and we can see these hunched over creatures that maybe wouldn't have had much way to move their waist. They would have been bent forward. And I think we can now understand that perhaps when we look at Lucy, perhaps we might think of creatures that were walking fully upright like we are. Whether or not they still climb trees, whether or not there was a shift in abandoning the trees when we went to Homo or something else going on, this doesn't necessarily speak to that. Um, because we can also look back in the fossil record that I don't have time to talk about and see that maybe our ancestors weren't exactly like chimps either. But when we have a picture of Lucy in our minds, when we have a picture of these Australopithecines walking around the landscape, we need to be thinking of them perhaps as moving and looking a little bit more human-like than maybe we thought of in 1973. So thank you very much. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Chris Ruff from Johns Hopkins University, and he's giving a talk entitled Limb Strength, Proportions, and Locomotion in Early Hominins. All right. As uh, a number of speakers have already noted, including myself in the introduction, uh, bipedalism, terrestrial bipedalism has been considered the definitive hominin trait, the thing that really sets us apart. But of course, we know that humans can still climb trees and that other primates can adopt bipedal postures like this uh, 
capuchin monkey who's breaking a, a nut with a stone here and doing very well at it. What makes human bipedal gait special, though, is that it's very efficient, modern human bipedal gait. So if we look at this experiment, experimental study from a few years ago, if we look at the cost of transport, that is how much it costs in terms of oxygen consumption to move a certain mass a certain distance, you find that humans are down here, walking humans. These are chimpanzees, bipedal and quadrupedal. So obviously much less efficient than humans, and in fact humans are more efficient even than your sort of average quadruped here. So very efficient. What makes it efficient? Well, lots of the things that we've been hearing about today. Uh, restructuring of the vertebral column, bring the body center of gravity over the hip joints and the lower limb and the foot. The restructuring of the pelvis for more efficient weight transfer. Changes in the foot, quite important, as we heard many times today and lengthening of the lower limb, which we haven't heard about. But uh, increasing the length of the limb that you're walking on because of our pendular mechanics of walking increases efficiency. And in fact, relative limb lengths, that is the length of the uh, forelimb to hind limb or individual bones making up the limbs, have long been used to categorize and uh, uh, describe locomotor differences in primates. So this slide from Schultz, you know Schultz's name showing up quite a bit today, did some of the fundamental work back uh, in the early, mid-1900s in this area. And we can see this is a ratio of forelimb length to hindlimb length. We can see humans down here, and then a quadrupedal primate, and then finally working our way up through the great apes, and then the most arboreal, lesser apes, and orangutans, uh, with the highest uh, ratio of forelimb to hindlimb length. So a pretty good correlation with locomotion. So, of course, this is something that paleoanthropologists have spent quite a bit of time studying. Uh, however, relative limb length is not necessarily as simple as would be indicated in the previous graph. It varies in a complex way in early hominins. Not all the elements of the limb change in length uh, in, in uh, tandem. You can have situations where one part of the limb is increasing in length and the other is not, um, situations where uh, it's very hard actually to work out sort of the allometry of what's changing. Is it the hind limb getting longer or is the forelimb staying, uh, becoming relatively shorter or what, what exactly is driving these things? Uh, and there's also been some suggestions, especially recently, that relative limb length may be a, a very conserved kind of characteristic. That is, it doesn't change very quickly necessarily with a change in locomotion. So you can have primitive retentions where an animal might be completely bipedal but retain, for example, a longer upper limb or forelimb if it's not selected against. So it's actually been suggested that relative limb length is not a particularly good or very precise characteristic to evaluate locomotion with in hominids. Uh, primitive Retentions or functionally significant. Or, but this is really the important part. What we really want to do is distinguish between characteristics that can tell us what early hominids actually did as opposed to what they could do. Okay? So relative limb length might tell you what they could do, but we're looking for traits to tell us what they actually did. And this requires a more direct evidence of use, something that's really going to reflect what they did during their lifetime as opposed to a possible primitive retention. And the characteristics that I study are structural features of long bones, the geometric distribution of bone in the cross-section, which can be analyzed using an engineering model to tell us how strong those bones are. 
And we know from various experimental and observational studies, like this famous study of tennis players here, uh, it was carried out actually by my undergraduate advisor at Stanford a long time ago. I had nothing to do with the study, but uh, I did look at the data later on. Um, and finding that the playing arm of tennis players, whether it's right or left side, these are professional tennis players, was some 40 to 60% stronger than the non-playing arm. And conversely, if you reduce the mechanical loading on a limb bone, it will reduce its cross-sectional strength. And we also know this from ontogenetic studies, which I think are very interesting natural experiments because you're, in this case, we're actually following a longitudinal sample of individuals. So each one of these points is a mean for a sample of 20 individuals that's being followed longitudinally, part of the Denver Growth Study. Uh, and this is the ratio of femoral to humeral strength. Okay? And it, it's, I've compared it here to a baboon sample, which was a cross-sectional sample, wild-shot baboons, and you can see that at six months to a year of age, humans have limb strength proportions identical to an adult baboon, which makes perfect sense because we're quadrupeds at that age. It's only after you begin walking that the femur increases in relative strength until it's vastly different from the baboon as an adult. So this is a natural experiment of an actual change in locomotor behavior, creating a change in bone strength. Now, very recently, we've been starting a study, similar kind of study, with gorillas. And I was very happy to see uh, Matt talking about uh, mountain versus lowland gorillas today because that is actually the contrast that we're looking at. Mountain gorillas, we know, are less arboreal. Lowland gorillas are more arboreal. And we know that they have different strength proportions, which I'm going to show you in a minute. But we've also just recently gotten some data on young mountain gorillas who we know are actually more arboreal than their adult family members. And you find some very interesting results here. This is actually humeral versus femoral strength. Here are chimpanzees and lowland gorillas with relatively stronger upper limbs because they climb more. Mountain gorillas are significantly lower. Okay? They have less strong forelimbs. But here are juvenile mountain gorillas. These are very young ones. And they look much more like lowland gorillas and chimpanzees. And we know that they climb more. So even in this close phylogenetically close comparison, we're finding some really distinctive changes that correlate with locomotor behavior in, in bone strength. So we think these are good characteristics for determining what an animal was actually doing at that point in its life. Okay, here's the, the same hominin phylogeny, and what I'm going to do is go through a few comparisons within this phylogeny of uh, actually uh, lower limb to upper limb bone strength and see whether actually we can say something about what these animals were actually doing at that, at that point in time. So the first comparison I'm going to carry out is between some of these early homo uh, taxa. Now at this point, we're almost to the exclusively bipedal portion of the hominid uh, tree. So the question would be, are all these fellows here uh, actually bipedal, uh, committed bipeds, or is there some variation? We have three uh, associated skeletons with skulls that we can uh, taxonomically group. Uh, Homo habilis, OH62, uh, and a couple of early Homo erectus or gaster specimens, an adult, and this famous juvenile, the Nericotomy boy that you've seen several times already today. And we were able to obtain cross-sections from the humerus and the femur for each of these. 
And if we look at femoral to humeral strength in modern humans and chimpanzees, as expected, humans have greater femoral strength relative to humeral strength than chimpanzees. There is no overlap here between the distributions. And if we add those specimens in, we find 1808, that was the adult uh, early Homo erectus, falls right within modern humans. The Nariacotomy boy, also right within modern humans. His slightly lower position here could actually be explained by the fact that he's an adolescent. Adolescents don't quite have the modern proportions, uh, adult proportions. But OH62 does not. Homo habilis, <laughs> I like the chuckle. Uh, Homo habilis <laughs> falls in, within the chimpanzee distribution, quite, quite obviously well below the human distribution, uh, indicating that it's different. That we have two different to me at least, two different forms of mechanical loadings of the limbs here, strongly suggesting to me that Homo habilis, whether or not it was completely modern in terms of bipedality uh, when on the ground, was using the trees, was using his upper limbs in a chimp-like manner. What about Aeophorensis, the uh, taxon that Lucy belongs to? Well, we have Lucy. Okay, so one really associated specimen that we have that we can do this analysis on. Uh, we were not able to get cross-sections of this for a long time, but just recently, with the help of uh, John Kappelman and his crew down at Texas, some CT scans actually were taken that were interpretable, and we were able to add her to the chart here. And she falls in between humans and chimpanzees, actually. So not human-like, but more human-like than OH62, which in itself is a very interesting observation. But my interpretation would be relatively stronger humerus, okay? And in fact, from other isolated specimens, just humeri, we know that Afarensis did have an extremely strong humerus by any measure here, huge muscle crests, et cetera. So unfortunately, we don't have associated femora, but that is certainly consistent with the evidence from these isolated bones. What about Africanus? Well, unfortunately, we don't have any associated humeri uh, humeral femoral specimens, but we do have one specimen from Sterkfontein 431 where we have a, a good distal half of a humerus, and we have uh, a hip bone with the acetabulum or the hip bone side of the hip joint, which we can measure and we can use to estimate body size. We have a couple of different estimates because actually this acetabulum is slightly distorted but um, we can get a fairly good estimate of body size that way. And then we can compare humeral strength relative to body size, which is not as good as relative to femur, but it is one measure of relative humeral strength. And this is what we come up with when we do that. First of all, okay, this is humeral strength, body mass. Here are modern humans. Here are chimpanzees. These are a couple of modern chimpanzees with known body weights, but we have others uh, with estimated body weights. You can see that chimpanzees have much stronger humeri relative to their body size than modern humans. And this Australopithecus africanus falls with chimpanzees even above chimpanzees. It has a very strong humerus relative to its body size. And so does Lucy, actually. Hey, Lucy on the same chart here. So A. africanus also had an extremely strong humerus. This is uh, Sediba. And you've seen this before. Okay, recently uh, became available, and through the uh, help of Steve Churchill and uh, Chris Carlson and uh, Lee Berger, uh, I was able to look at cross-sections from the humerus, humeri of these uh, two individuals. There is a femur, but the distal end of the femur here is rather worn and broken up, and so the cross-sections are not completely trustworthy yet. At least they're still being worked on. But 
I was able to estimate body mass from the femoral heads, heads of these two individuals. One of these is a juvenile, one is an adult. And again, look at relative humeral strength, and this is where it comes out. This is very interesting given the information we just had on the foot earlier today. Uh, in fact, Sediba looks more modern than these others in terms of relative humeral strength. And I put WT15000, Nary Economy Boy, on here also just kind of for, for comparison. So the implication being that, in fact, it uh, was not loading its upper limbs in the same way as uh, these earlier Australopithecines were. How about Ramidus? Well, very interesting skeleton, obviously. Uh, people have said a few words about it today, not too much. Unfortunately, we don't have cross-sections from it yet, although I assume that they will be coming. And we don't have a humerus. Okay, we have partial femoral shaft, tibia, we have forelimb bones. Um, we can look at the length of the uh, radius versus the tibia, for example, and it falls right in next to chimpanzees and not near modern humans. And I think just even looking at these comparisons here, you can see that the strength of the forearm versus the leg here is probably not going to be very human-like, although it will have to be quantified. And we also know from other features, such as the adducted uh, Big toe, uh, abducted big toe and the long curved digits, et cetera, that our, Aramidus has many indications of arboreality. I don't think that's really in question from anyone. So if we look at this uh, chart again, here, here's what we find. Aramidus, significant arboreal component. Aophorensis, also evidence for significant arboreal behavior, upper limb loading. Aphriconus, the same. Homo habilis, the same. Actually, and then once we get to ergaster and erectus, we have evidence for completely modern behavior. But until that point, all these forms, to my mind at least, show that there was, in addition to whatever bipedalism was practiced on the ground, we also had significantly higher loadings of the upper limb relative to the lower limb, which to me indicates that it was also being used in an arboreal context. So I think these data and other data indicate that among early hominids, terrestrial bipedality coexisted with arboreal climbing for millions of years. Terrestrial bipedality did not become obligatory until latest Australopithecus or, or Homo uh, ergaster erectus, and that adoption of terrestrial bipedality was a gradual process with many intermediate experiments. And I think that's also the message we're getting from most of the other talks today. And I would like to thank everyone here uh, for their work on this. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.